Good morning. Let's stand together and worship. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in all his love for me. All his love have a seat. So our special needs and disability ministry here at Fellowship just plays a special role in the body of this congregation and this church. And so we are grateful um, that we get to provide a space for families um, who are affected by disability to come and to worship. Um, and so that looks different for every family um, that's part of this ministry. We have kids ranging from early childhood age all the way through adults with disabilities. Um, and we have lots of different ways that they worship um, with us on a Sunday. And so um, our goal in this ministry is to uh, allow these participants to just learn about the love of Jesus in whatever way um, 
makes sense and is best for them. And so we uh, enjoy that we get to create this space for families to worship and for these children to worship um, in just whatever way is best for them. And so uh, our ministry is a lifespan ministry, which is something we're really excited about. Um, it ranges from birth to adults. And so um, once your kid has moved out of um, an early childhood or an elementary age, we still have an opportunity for them to worship and to learn about Jesus. Um, even through adult years. And so it's great that we just get to offer that. And so we're thankful um, just for the opportunity to provide that um, for these families to create this space for them to be part of community and to worship. Um, and just that we get to partner alongside you as a church body um, to love and pray for these families and include them in community um, and, and even as you serving alongside them. And so um, we're just grateful that we get to do that here at Fellowship. Well, good morning, church. How are you this morning? And we are glad that you are here. There is something special uh, when the church, uh, when the body of Christ comes together in worship, and we are glad that you're here this morning. If you are joining us for the first time, uh, we're especially glad, and we would love to say hello and to get to know you. Uh, we say this all the time. We love new people. We love when our neighbors come and worship with us. And so if we can help connect with you, that would be a privilege for us. We can do that in a couple of ways. Uh, the best way is to do it in person. You can just stop by the community booth across the foyer when the service is over. Or you can feel free to use some of the the QR code or the texting uh, in, if that's a little easier for you, just to let us know you're here, and then we'll follow up from there. But one person I want you to meet in person is the one you just saw on the screen. This is Lauren Weatherly. Would you say good morning? Lauren uh, leads our special needs and disability ministry, and I'll tell you, you will not find a more passionate more organized, skilled servant leader uh, on our team. And we are grateful for you and what you've done in our special need disability ministry. Uh, you've got some passion and excitement for it. Why is that? I think one of the most passionate things I enjoy about this ministry is just that it is a lifespan ministry. So um, we have classes from the youngest uh, infants all the way up to adults. Um, and we uh, facilitate uh, just an opportunity for our participants to learn about Jesus um, every Sunday um, and just get to build relationships with these families um, and provide a space just for these families to worship. Um, and so it's just really great to be able to offer that here at Fellowship um, and just have some really amazing leaders that invest in our families as well. So we're so grateful. Yeah, your team really is, uh, they're fun <laughs> and they're committed. Um, does someone have to have experience with disability to jump in? You do not have to. I do not have a special education background. Um, we just want people who are passionate about loving um, these individuals with disabilities and so just connecting with them, investing in them, and teaching them about Jesus. So you do not have to have a special needs background. Yeah, and it, your ministry has been a gift to us and the body. We hope it has blessed the families affected by special needs. But they're a gift uh, to our body and their engagement among us is a gift. And so we're grateful that you've built the bridge there. How could someone take the next step to jumping in? Yeah, if you would be interested in more information or serving, um, this QR code has a link to our page on the website, and so my contact information is there. Um, or after service, I will be at the booth that's closest to the Children's Ministry building um, out in the lobby, so I would love to chat with you and connect with you there. So do so. Jump in. If that's something that's close to your heart, you will find a group of people you'll enjoy serving with. Hey, would you stand right now as we uh, continue our time in worship?
Lauren and Peck, I'm going to ask you, would you pray over us? Father, we are just so grateful um, just for this opportunity to come before you this morning and just to worship um, together um, as a body. And so we just pray um, that as we enter this time of worship, Lord, that you would just draw us near to you um, and just teach us more about who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Are you listening? Church, come into his presence this morning with singing. Lift your voice. Know that the Lord, uh, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And this next verse, verse four, tells us how we're to approach worship this morning. I was just reading this week, uh, someone mentioning the quality of your approach determines the quality of your experience of something or someone. Same is true. And the psalmist gives us um, some instructions on how we might approach God in worship. He says, enter his gates with thanksgiving in his courts with for what has God done in your life by bringing you to this moment standing in front of that chair that you're standing in front of. Just take a moment, I invite you to just bow your head, close your eyes, and draw to mind the things that you are thankful for. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, church, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations.
You may be seated. I turned my mic off. Sorry back there at the booth, guys. Don't they do a great job? Yeah. No one usually turns around unless something goes wrong with the sound, and then they look back there. Great job. You know, I look around the room this morning, and I see a lot of faces of you that back in 2016, I was coming into your homes and visiting with you about the possibility, the dream that we had of a fellowship Bentonville visiting with your community groups, casting vision. And it just seemed like such a far away dream for all of us. And I remember going into Mark and Allison Britton's home and they had cupcakes made up that said, Bentonville, it's time. You remember that? Uh, and it's been a long journey. We, we had no idea. Questions would come up about uh, how much is it going to cost? And we had just finished Fellowship Fayetteville, and, and all I really knew to tell you at the time is probably somewhere between 13 and 15 million because that's what it had cost. Not realizing that the building costs were going to go up on us, and the final tally for this building was $29,877,504 and a few cents. Much more expensive than we thought it would be. But God is faithful, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but be glory to your name because of your love and faithfulness. 
And so many of you, it wasn't the large gifts that just kept us going. It was just everyone being faithful. And I come to report to you this morning that this building is paid in full. Yeah. So we do come to thank the Lord for all that he's done and believe, as we're told in Ephesians, that he can do abundantly above what we could ever ask or imagine. And we need to remember that. When our faith is waning, just remember God can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so I encourage you, if you've been giving toward Fellowship Bentonville, if you set up a recurring gift, you need to turn that off. And, uh, or, or you could transition that money to just the general fund if you're not missing it uh, because we've had trouble keeping up with our budget. And there were times this year we thought we were going to have to cancel mission trips and things like that because it was pretty tight at times. And so, uh, but, but we know God is going to provide as he has. And thank you for your faithfulness. And if I could, could we just pray before we take our offering and, and thank God? Just be grateful for a moment. Just call to mind how he's been faithful to you in your life. Just express to him a debt of gratitude for working in and through this body to pay off our debt. Oh, Lord, there are new horizons out there. There are new things for us to accomplish as we love you, love others, and make disciples. To make more room for others to experience what we have experienced because of this church. Oh, Lord, help us to be faithful, to never step back, never let up until you come. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, of whispering in our ears and saying, I'm here. I can do much more than you could have ever imagined. For it's in Christ's name we pray.
sing it one more time. Whether you think you have a good voice or not, sing it. Let's sing it out together. 
with full hearts all my life. Jesus, you have been so good to me. You have been so good to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For providing over and above. Providing just enough. Whatever each season brings, you are still our provider. And you are faithful and more than enough. So God, we celebrate what you've done among us. We ask you to just keep working. Keep working on us. Keep working uh, through us. God, we thank you for your word. And thank you for your faithfulness to always speak. God, may we be good listeners this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Good morning. Um, Seth knows that that song makes me cry, and so he loves to sing it right before I get up to teach. As we continue in our study of the story found in the book of Esther, let's do a quick recap of the story up to this point. Now, the first time I remember a television show that would regularly do recaps before every episode was the show Lost. Anybody remember the show Lost? I still don't know where those people were or what happened to them. But anyway, previously on Lost. So anyway, we're going to do a recap. Uh, Previously in Esther. Last week, we looked at the first three chapters Uh, And we were introduced to the main characters in the story. We have an indecisive and idolatrous king, a beautiful and bold queen, a generous and good hero, a beautiful and brave heroine, and an evil and egotistical villain. Uh, I'm tempted to get you to start every time you hear the name Haman just to go, he's a bad guy. We won't do that. But anyway... um, at the end of that, of that part of the story, we found out about a plan on the part of the villain, Haman, to destroy all the Jews in order to punish the hero, Mordecai. And that's where Hunter left us hanging. Remember, he said, if you want to know what happens next, you have to come back this week. Um, so that's where we were left hanging. So we're going to pick up right there. Now, to show you where we're going in the story today, I want to look at this unique feature of the book of Esther uh, that... It's using a literary device called a chiastic structure. It's in that your study guide book, and it's, it's really kind of, you look at it, and you get, it's really interesting. But basically, the chiastic structure, it gets its name from the Greek letter key, which looks like an X. Uh, and if you take half of that, that's what the chiastic structure looks like. And 
It's a literary device that was kind of useful in helping people remember stories, and it's, it's used uh, somewhat in, in the Old Testament. It seems to be primarily a Hebrew uh, device that they used. But the entire book of Esther is written in this structure, and when you look at it, you can kind of see where it comes to a major point, a major thing going on. And then from that point on, it kind of mirrors or repeats previous themes to draw to a conclusion. So that's the chiastic structure. Now, if you take that and flip it on its 90 degrees on its back, you have another literary device that you may have learned about in literature called a story arc. And almost every good story follows this in some general uh, way. The story arc, where we have the setting of the context, the introduction of the characters, the development of a conflict, which leads to a crisis, a confrontation between the hero and the villain, the consummation of the resolution, and then the ending with the conclusion. Uh, For example, every good story begins with once upon a time, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And every good story ends with happily ever after. So we have the conclusion. And that's the story arc. Well, today in that story arc, we are at the point between uh, the conflict being presented and the confrontation uh, between the heroes and the bad guys. And we are at that point of crisis. That's where we are. In today's story, uh, Mordecai and Esther are going to be going through a crisis. And as a result, we see them coming out of that crisis and acting with great courage, especially Esther. So she's the one we're going to focus on. And and how she acted out of this crisis with great courage. So with that in place, I want you to look at Esther chapter 4 with me. I'm not going to read it to you, but I want you to follow along as I kind of summarize the movement. Esther chapter 4 is essentially a conversation between Mordecai and Esther. However, it's not a conversation where they're sitting or standing together in the same room. Esther is in the palace And Mordecai is outside of the king's palace gates. And so the way they have this conversation is they have a a courier going back and forth uh, carrying this conversation. So that's how this is going to unfold. So follow along with me. We begin with Mordecai, um, who is Esther's cousin that became her adopted father when her parents died. Uh, we, We begin with him outside the palace gates in sackcloth and ashes and mourning. He is in great grief and sorrow. And the reason for this is he has heard about the edict that we heard about in chapter 3 last week, where there was this edict sent throughout all of the Persian Empire whose intent was essentially to annihilate the Jews. And Haman had orchestrated this because of his hatred for for Mordecai. He wanted to kill all the Jews. And he got this edict uh, sent out throughout the whole kingdom. And as a result, we have Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes and mourning and grieving because this is going to happen. So now Esther, who is now the queen, so just real quick, she was an orphan that was adopted by her cousin. She was part of the people the, uh, that had been taken prisoner of war, the Jews, 
uh, had been conquered originally by the Babylonians. They were taken prisoner of war. And then when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, they just kind of kept them there. Uh, so they were an oppressed group of people. And so she was from that group. She, uh, she happened to be beautiful, and the king happened to be looking for a new queen. And so she got dragged into this kind of twisted beauty pageant, and she ended up being selected to be queen. And so she is the queen. She hears that Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. And so she sends him a change of clothes. Now, you may read that and go, that seems a bit strange. Uh, kind of a strange response. Hey, Esther, your, your cousin dad, Mordecai, uh, is, is outside and he's in sackcloth and ashes. And she said, well, here, send some clothes to him. Why would she do that? Well, because it was against the law to be in sackcloth and ashes outside the king's gate. And she didn't want him to get in trouble. Apparently, the king of Persia wanted to be able to sit in his palace and pretend that all was good and pleasant in his kingdom, regardless of what was really going on. And so he wanted to keep everything that he could see and everything that was around him uh, feeling like everything was good and pleasant. I'll leave it to you to make any present-day applications of that. But anyway, Esther didn't want Mordecai to get into trouble. So she sent him this change of clothes, and Mordecai refused them. So Esther needed to know, why, why did Mordecai refuse them? So they came back, and they still had the clothes, and said, Mordecai wouldn't take them. And so she said, well, what, what is going on? So she sends a guy named Hathak to go and talk to Mordecai. Now, Hathak, for the rest of the story, is going to be the guy going back and forth. I feel a little sorry for him. Um, it reminds me of being in school, and somebody wanted to know if somebody else liked them, and so they would get a friend, hey, would you go and ask this person if they like me? And that person would say, well, I don't know. Do they like me? And so then they come back over here and say, well, she says she doesn't know. Do you like her? Well, yeah, I think I kind of like her. And so we're back and forth until they finally kind of get the conclusion of, whatever it is they're looking for. That's what poor Hathak had to do. So that's what his job in this is. He's going back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. So she sends Hathak to ask, what's the story? Why did you refuse this? Why are you continuing to break the law and be in sackcloth and ashes? And Hathak goes and finds the whole story, and Mordecai tells him what's going on, and then gives him a written copy of this edict for the annihilation of the Jews. And he says, take this back to Esther. Tell her what's going on. And command her, order her, is actually the word that's used there, order her to go and ask the king for help. So it seems at this point that Esther had no idea about this edict. She didn't know that this edict had ever been sent out. So Hathak brings that back, and he tells Esther all that Mordecai had said. And Esther responds by reminding Mordecai that there's a rule in the Persian palace, that no one can come before the king unless summoned, and that to violate this rule is to risk being executed. And then she says, and I haven't been invited into the king's presence in 30 days. It's been an entire month since I've seen him. So in other words, she's telling Mordecai, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And then Mordecai responds to Esther's hesitation by reminding her that this edict would result in her death 
too, because she's also a Jew. And then he challenges her to consider, perhaps this is the reason that you have become queen. And then Esther ends the conversation by ordering Mordecai to get as many of the Jews as possible to join her and her attendants in a three-day fast. Let me just insert here, it doesn't say that they're going to fast and pray, but in the Jewish culture, fasting and prayer went together. So it is really safe for us to assume that this was a prayer time. So join me. In fact, you know, she says, she orders Mordecai to do this. Join me in this three-day fast, and at the end of that fast, she says, she will go to the king and ask for help. And then she says this great line, and if I perish, I perish. And the very last verse of chapter 4 of Esther says, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So what happens next? Well, you have to come back next week to find out that. I mentioned earlier that our heroine, Esther, responded to this crisis with great courage. And as I've read and reread this chapter, I have been struck by the transformation of Esther from the beginning of this chapter to the end. So I want us to take some time to look at that transformation and see what we can learn about living courageously from Esther's example. At the beginning of this chapter, and actually in the story all the way up to this point, we see Esther primarily as powerless. You might even call her a victim. At the very least, she seems to be controlled by her circumstances and the people around her. She's always being told what to do and how to do it. And she's always dependent on these people giving her direction and, and doing whatever it is that, she, that they tell her to do. And even though she's become the queen of Persia, in this story we find out she's, she's uninformed. She doesn't know what's going on. She had no idea of the edict to kill the Jews. And perhaps that's because she was also marginalized, pushed over to the side. Obviously, the king did not see her as important to the kingdom. He didn't include her in anything that was going on. Felt perfectly fine with not even seeing her for 30 days. And so if the king felt that way about her, it made perfect sense for Esther to feel that way about herself. No reason for her to, to go to the king. She had no power. She had no influence. And she had no rights. But by the end of the chapter, we have an entirely different Esther. We hear her telling Mordecai what to do, giving orders to Mordecai, her father. We hear her making I will statements instead of I can't. Instead of saying, no, I know I can't do that. She goes, I will. I will go before the king. And instead of fearing the consequences and saying, you know, if I went before the king, he might kill me. She steps up and says, and if I perish, I perish. What in the world happened to this young woman to make that transition? How did she go from this timid and fearful person, from this helpless and powerless person to this woman of great courage? And by the way, here's 
Here's the uh, spoiler for the rest of the story. She becomes, from this point on, the most powerful character in the story. This is where she truly becomes the queen of Persia. What happened? I think the key is found in what Mordecai says to Esther and when he offers, issues that challenge. I want to read it to you. I think the final place, thank you. Then Mordecai said, told, said, replied to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. When I unpack this challenge that, that Mordecai issues to Esther, and I see this transformation, I think I'd see three things that happened uh, that brought about this challenge. Number one, Esther embraced her identity, her real, her true identity. Up to this point, at the insistence of Mordecai, Esther has never told anybody she was Jewish. It seems to be that nobody in the palace, and especially not the king, knew her true identity was that she was a Jew. But, but Mordecai then reminds her, wait a minute, you need to understand these are your people. And if they're going to die, you're going to die with them. And it reminds her of her identity of being one of the people of God. She's been living behind this facade and the pretense that she was someone that she really was not. And I'm convinced that when he issued this challenge, she took the time to consider what does it mean to be part of God's people? I think she probably began asking the question, who am I really? And what does that mean for me? I don't pretend to know what Esther was thinking or feeling about who she was. Um, the, the story doesn't tell us, and it's very dangerous when we start reading uh, things into a story that aren't there. I don't know how she feels about who she was, but here's what I know. This transformation, that, that, this amazing transformation that I pointed out to you did not happen until she was confronted with and embraced the fact that she was a Jew. When you read the Bible with an eye for identity statements, when you read it looking for what does God say about who I am, you begin to see that embracing who we are in God's eyes is very important. I know I've spent and continue to spend way too much time in my own life focusing on who I think I am or who I feel like I am instead of who God says that I am. I spend too much time embracing either my view or other people's view of me than I do embracing by faith who God says I am in Christ. In Romans chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, we're given this list of circumstances and opposition and problems that we face in life. And we're told that in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. But this is not just a Bible-based self-help program to help you believe in yourself. There are a lot of things out there that, that encourage you, uh, kind of motivational encouragement, and there's nothing wrong with them as such. 
that tell you, you need, you need to believe in yourself. You got this. You can do this. If you believe you can, you can. Be brave and be courageous and encouraging us to kind of to just gather that up and truly embrace that. But what I find in my own life and just walking with you people is that we may embrace that with all of our energy and then we find ourselves falling and failing. And I ask myself, why? If we're more than conquerors, why are we being conquered? If God says that we are victorious, why are we victims? <clears throat> now, I want you to hang on because you're not going to like what I'm going to say next. But stay with me. I'll get, I'll, get, I'll get somewhere where you'll be okay, okay? Deep breath. All right. Because you are not adequate. You are not enough. You are not equal to every challenge. And you will not be victorious over every hardship. You will not rise above every injustice that you stand against by yourself. And there's the problem. We miss that part. Sometimes we'll get those motivational ideas or we'll get this, I'm just going to suck it up and I'm going to do these things and we'll marshal all the resources we can. Uh, we, we may sit in counseling to work through our issues and we may gather a community around us that encourages us and, and we may you know, post positive statements on our mirrors and all those things really are really good for us. And yet, we live in a world that is bigger than we are, and we are, it is filled with an incredibly broken people like we are. And no matter how good and hard and, and talented you are and, and how hard you work, you will come to a point at some point in life where something bigger than you will take you down on your own. The promise of Romans chapter 8 is that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. Through Christ Jesus. Our identity is that we are in him and we are his. And that's what gives us the strength to overcome. Being rooted in the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus is what will make us courageous. I can do all things through Christ. And it is when we embrace this identity of who we are in Christ that we find the strength and the courage to be overcomers. <coughs> I was sitting in a group of some uh, Bible teachers and pastors, and there was one particularly wise uh, man that I just have great respect for, and, and we were talking about just some things that, that, um, that our people, our congregations that we love and lead are struggling with, and he said, I am convinced that one of the biggest challenges for Christians is that we forget who we are. Esther had been pretending that she was someone else, and it wasn't until she was able to embrace who she was that she was able to become courageous. We forget who we are. We are 
the children of God through Christ Jesus. The second thing I see about this transformation is that Esther considered the faithfulness of God. Uh, Last week, Hunter pointed out that while God's not mentioned in the book, he's very present in the book. And here, his presence shows up in Mordecai's statement. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews. How could he make such a statement? The whole empire of Persia was against the Jews and were about to annihilate them. And yet, Mordecai tells Esther, relief will come. Deliverance will rise. God will deliver us. He didn't say the word God, but that's what he's saying. How did he do this? Because he knew that God is faithful to keep his word and to care for his people. He believed that God was at work to deliver his people and that Esther was then being invited to join in what God was already doing. And when Esther heard that, she considered the faithfulness of God. Um, In his book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby talks about a principle that says God's always at work to accomplish his plan and his purposes. There's never a time when God isn't working. And we need to kind of rest in that a moment. There is never a time when God is not working to accomplish his plans and his purposes. God is always at work. And then God invites you and me to join him in that work. And then this is what Blackaby says. God's invitation to you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Whatever you do next reveals what you believe about God. God was inviting Esther to be the instrument that he would use to deliver his people. It's kind of an interesting note. When you think about uh, God delivering his people, we have seen deliverers all through the Old Testament. And Esther gets to be one of those. She gets invited to be one of those. And then Esther had to decide. He was calling her to faith and action. And she had to decide What do I believe about God? Is he trustworthy? Can I depend on him? Is he faithful? And so by considering God's faithfulness to his people, her courage was empowered. As she began to consider, is God trustworthy? I'm certain the stories of her people were going through her mind and how God had delivered them again and again and again. And she realized God's always been faithful to his people. One of the reasons we gather with other believers regularly is to remind each other of God's acts of faithfulness on our behalf. We sing about it. All my life, you have been faithful. We pray prayers of thanksgiving about it. We tell stories of how God's faithfulness has shown up in our lives and in the lives of others. We need to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness, that God can be trusted, that God keeps his word, he cares for his people. And then when we learn to trust in God's faithfulness, then that will empower us to be courageous. 
And then third, I see that Esther had a clear sense of her calling. And I don't mean by this that she knew exactly what God was going to do or what would happen to her. She makes that clear when she says, if I perish, I perish. She didn't know what was going to happen. But she knew what she was being called to. She had a clear sense of what God was calling her to do and to be. When Mordecai challenged her to consider just what, why she might be where she was at this particular time, she became convinced that she was called to stand up for her people. One of the things I think that hinders us from living courageously is a lack of purpose and calling. We all need to know, and we all long to know, is there a plan, is there a purpose for my life? We need to believe that somehow our lives and the things that happen to us have meaning and, and, and somehow can lead to a purpose. And if we see our lives as a set of events and circumstances that have no real meaning or purpose, then we live lives that are helpless and weak. And we say like Esther, who am I? I can't. But what if? What if God has a purpose and a plan? And what if he is using the circumstances and events of your life to bring you to just the right place at just the right time to join him in that plan? What if that's the case? You see, God can use this shift in perspective. If we can begin to see our lives that way, God can use this shift in perspective to give us a sense of purpose that will give us the courage to step out boldly into our calling. You know what God's calling for your life is? I'll tell you. Here it is. Join him in his work. That's it. That is God's plan and purpose for your life. Join me in my work. Come, follow me. That's what Jesus said. Well, where do I join him in, my, in his work? Where are you? You see, I came to this deep, profound realization, because I'm a deep thinker like that, that if I'm following Jesus, then wherever I am is where he's led me, right? So where do I join him? Right where I am. I am right where I am for this time, for this purpose. You know, another thing that, that Blackaby talks about, and he talks about when God invites us to join him and that becoming our calling, uh, he brings up the, the story of Moses as an example, and he says, we often mishear what God says. So God comes to Moses and says, uh, I'm going to be delivering the people of, of Israel out of Egypt. I want you to go and lead them out. And Moses said, well, I can't do that. I can't deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. Who am I? And Blackaby points out, Moses missed the first part of the statement where God says, I am going to deliver my people. You get to come along and be the instrument that I use. God is not calling you to accomplish anything great on your own. He's calling you to join him in the great thing that he's already doing and be part of the, one of the instruments and part of the plan that he uses to carry that out. And when we recognize God's call on our lives, that gives us the courage then to step out and boldly say to him, yes, I will do that. 
So this transformation of Esther is, is dramatic. Um, it enables her to become the true heroine of the story, this powerless orphan child of prisoners of war through a series of unlikely and, to be honest, traumatic events and experiences has become the powerful queen of Persia. And God uses her to deliver his people. Not all of us will have the, a big story like Esther. But all of us can live courageous lives with Jesus that will make a difference, that will have meaning and purpose. And it begins when we are willing and able to embrace who we are in Christ. It is empowered when we remind ourselves and trust in God's faithfulness. And it enables us to live out his calling for us. So as we close, I want you to examine two areas of your life. First, do you see yourself the way God sees you? What is your identity rooted in? Is it rooted in how others see you or treat you? Is it rooted in how you see yourself? Or is your identity rooted in how God sees you in Christ Jesus? And second, are you willing to courageously join God right where you are in his plan and his purpose as he calls you and invites you? Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm thankful that your word just continues to guide us, direct us, encourage us, teach us, form us and transform us. Lord, I thank you for this story of courage that we see being lived out in Esther's life and how, Lord, we can, we can have that same story be true of us. Lord, teach us to see ourselves through your eyes. Help us to embrace the truth of your word and what it says about us. Lord, help us to courageously step out and say yes to your calling, to join you in your work right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. As I walk through the shadows, 
very much worth clapping for. Uh, we sang just before the message that our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is the one who not only is with us, he is for us. I don't know what you walk into this week. Some of it may be overwhelming. Some of it may be just whelming. But the point is God is with you and for you every step of the way. So grateful. Hey, could I ask you to sit for just one quick second? When you came in uh, to the foyer this morning, you saw balloons uh, out there, and the balloons were really not there to celebrate somebody's birthday or even celebrate the good news of a debt being retired. The balloons were there to help you connect. We believe that one of the best ways to make a large church feel small is by connecting in a small group of some kind. And so we've got some ways for you to do that. If I were in your shoes and were fairly new here at Fellowship Bentonville, or maybe you feel like you're not so new but you just don't know how to make this more than just a weekly worship gathering. The best first step is Discover Fellowship. And next week, Discover Fellowship kicks off. It's an eight-week experience, both large group and small group, and you'll get a chance to not just uh, find out a little bit more about the church, but better yet, connect to one another in that experience. And we have room for you. So use the QR code behind me to jump into Discover Fellowship as your first step. Some of you maybe need a next step. A community group is the best place to do so. And uh, you'll see around those balloons folks with information about how to jump into a, a community group or a men's group or, or a women's group. The point is this. We have room around our table for you. And there is a chair waiting for you to fill it. Would you come join us? Hey, Seth, can I ask you to come and join me here? You've got something for us this morning. I do. Well, it is a bittersweet morning uh, for us, for all of us, and the worship team especially, um, because we are both celebrating and grieving the release of a leader. Uh, Mr. Houston Clifton, come on out here, buddy. Uh, Houston and Jess are uh, stepping into that next phase of calling in their life, and that's moving them back closer to home and in central Arkansas. And so Houston, hopefully you know this guy by now, but he uh, is the, the, has been the face of worship for our FSM students, but also once a month he's been here leading us in worship. And uh, brother, we love you so much, and we're so grateful for, for all that you've done and been a part of. Um, we, uh, as we were about to move into this space, I was, we were looking through pictures to put on a wall in a room that we meet back there, and, uh, and I was scrolling through pictures of us worshiping in the park, and I saw this one of Houston, just huge, just super close facial shot of Houston. I was like, oh, that would be funny. I joked to Marsha, that would be funny. We just put that center on that wall. I come in, and Marsha's got it center on the wall. And, uh, and so it's actually been really fun. He's actually had a mustache on, drawn on at one time. There's been all kind of craziness that goes on back there. But um, I, I thought you probably needed that to take with you. I'm sure you're going to want to probably put it, like, over your mantle place, wherever you guys end up. <laughs> but I wanted you to have it. And some of the worship team... Uh, just signed it with a few blessings and that kind of thing. But uh.
Father, we love Houston. God, we are grateful for the time that we got to have with him on staff here with us, uh, with him being in our community uh, of Fellowship Bentonville. God, thanks for the way that you've worked through him. Uh, and, and God, thank you for the way that you've encouraged me through him. Thank you for how you've used him to just create such a healthy culture of worship here at Fellowship Bentonville. Uh, he's been an incredible partner, and we're going to miss him a ton. But we pray blessing over his next steps, he and Jessica both. Uh, God, would you just um, make the path straight in front of them, uh, even when they can't see it? Uh, would you walk right alongside in a way that's felt and known as friend? Uh, and then also just be the wind at their back. God, thank you for Houston and Jess. Uh, we commit them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, you can say thanks. If we can pray for you, if there's something you're walking through and you just feel like, I, I would love someone to come alongside and pray the same prayer of blessing over me, Gordy and Colleen Zeiser are going to be standing right in front of the baptistry right here, and we would love to pray with you and for you. And likewise, as our folks are out in the foyer, our connections team and community team are ready for you and how to help you take the next step into a small group of some kind.